Would you please stand for the reading of the word? Matthew 11, 2 through 11. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our passage for today, this third Sunday in Advent, takes us to a prison cell where we encounter a disappointed, doubting, and disillusioned John the Baptist. Perhaps not what you or I expect in the lead-up to Christmas. But I've preached through Advent enough times by now to know that Advent always seems just a bit out of step with Christmas season. Christmas is, of course, about hope and cheer and faith in Jesus, and yet the church calendar takes us to a passage which is about disillusionment, doubt, and disappointment with Jesus. And yet here we are, with John the Baptist asking this haunting question, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Just to the east, you can put up that first slide, just to the east of the Dead Sea stands the ruins uh, of the ancient fortress that you can see here. This is a picture I took uh, last summer when I was there. Uh, this is the uh, site where we believe John the Baptist was imprisoned and beheaded. It belonged to Herod the Great. This is the Herod that we know from around this time of year who tried to kill the baby Jesus. And then he passed it on to his son Herod Ant Ant Antipas. You can go on to the next one. This is the Herod that, uh, that, that John criticized for marrying his brother's wife and why he ended up in this prison in the first place. And eventually, he will be uh, beheaded after a wild night of dancing here. Uh, this fortress, it's a beautiful location. You're up almost 4,000 feet above the Dead Sea, which sits to the west. You can see looking out that way. Um, just to the north of there, I don't know if John, I can't know if John could quite see it, but there's the Judean wilderness. There's the place where John launched his ministry. This is the place where people had come from all over, streamed to him to, uh, to be baptized in the River Jordan. This is where, with utter confidence, John had announced that things were about to change for the people of Israel. God's long-expected visit was about to happen. 
And I imagine one of the nice things, there's not much to see up at this ancient, uh, these ancient ruins, but you can take some time to ponder what was that like for John? What would it have been like to spend two years in prison there? What would it have been like to look out from that vantage point and recognize how much John's life had changed? He now paces this tiny jail cell where he's got little else to do but think about how different things have turned out. Because these reports are coming to John in prison, and they don't seem to be adding up to John. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. We're, taking, we're pausing for a few weeks for Advent and Christmas, but we're in Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. And what happens after Jesus preaches that sermon is he goes down the mountain, and this is the, this is the best way I can describe it, is Jesus is on fire. He catches fire. I don't know if anybody else knows the game NBA Jam, uh, when I was a kid, NBA Jam was great. It was a basketball video game. And what happened in NBA Jam is if you started knocking down your shots, you started to heat up. I'm getting a lot of blank stares here on NBA Jam. All right, hang with me. You knock down your shots, basketball shots, you're going to heat up. Eventually, if you keep making them, you're going to catch fire. At that point, the ball has got flames coming out the back of it. And here's the thing about it, if you catch fire in NBA Jam, at that point, whatever you throw up is going to go in. You are unstoppable. It doesn't matter if you're throwing up a half-court shot, it's going in, okay? Jesus comes down the mountain from preaching his great sermon. He starts out by healing a man who's before him who has leprosy, okay? Not bad, leprosy. Next story. Soldier comes to Jesus, says, I want you to heal my servant. The servant isn't even there. The servant is at a long distance, Jesus nails it, okay? heals from downtown this servant, doesn't even go up to the servant. Jesus is heating up. From there, Jesus goes and calms a furious storm on the lake. He casts out demons into pigs. He heals a guy who is paralyzed. And then he does this back-to-back healing, which is unbelievable. He, he heals a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years as he's going to raise a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Who does that? Like at this point, Jesus is on fire. The last thing in that section, Jesus comes to a blind man and heals him. Something, it's, it's, that may not seem like a big deal to us, you know, healing the blind, but back in Jesus' day, that was even more incredible than raising someone from the dead. Okay? Jesus is on fire. John catches wind of all that's happening, and it sends him into a crisis of faith. This totally starts messing with John. It sends John the Baptist into a spiral of doubt and uncertainty, a dark night of the soul, until John finally asks the question, are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? You understand what John is asking here? John is saying to his cousin Jesus, I may have picked the wrong one. I may have picked the wrong horse. I thought I knew who you were, Jesus. I thought you were the one to come. And as I pace my prison cell, I'm having doubts. This is a haunting question. This is a question tinged with disappointment and heartache and uncertainty. This is the opposite of what we would expect of all that is happening with Jesus. So what's going on here with John? Jesus is on fire, but it's the wrong kind of fire in John's mind. Okay? Go, if you go back to chapter 3 in Matthew's gospel, there's these religious leaders that are coming to John. He greets them with this nice greeting, you brood of vipers. You can kind of see where the sermon is going. 
he warms up, he begins to talk about an axe at the root of a tree and how the tree, if it doesn't bear good fruit, will be chopped down. But he's just getting started, and he continues here. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now that's John's kind of Messiah. That's a Messiah in the mold of Elijah who comes down and casts fire on the prophets of Baal. That's a Messiah who shows up with a winning fork in hand, who separates, who throws up the wheat and the chaff, and the chaff is burned up with unquenchable fire. That is a Messiah who takes a tyrant like Herod, knocks him from his throne, and frees John from prison. See, John's job description for Jesus involves an axe. It involves a winnowing fork. It involves unquenchable fire, and it involves the annihilation of Israel's enemies. Jesus is up on the mountain preaching about lilies and birds. Rather than calling down fire from the sky like Elijah's, Jesus is healing his enemy's servant. Rather than destroying the unrighteous, Jesus is hanging out with them. He's calling them like Matthew, a tax collector, to be his disciple. See, what's happening is that John is looking back at his life. He has done his part Jesus doesn't seem to be doing his part. Jesus seems to be going off script, and it's messing with John. Things aren't adding up. And John asks this question, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? There's a lot about John the Baptist I don't relate to. Maybe you have a similar feeling. Um, Most people, as I understand, don't see long stretches of time camping alone in the wilderness as fun. I don't get that one, Um, but most people don't see that as fun. Uh, The hot new trends for 2023 are not uh, camel-haired clothes and locusts on the menu. John's, like, fire and brimstone sinners in the hands of an angry God, like, that, that preaching style is just not so much in style these days. The wild-eyed prophet John of the wilderness, I look at that guy and I'm like, I don't relate to that guy. Maybe you have a similar feeling. But this guy, in the prison cell, uncertain, disappointed, frustrated, confused, disillusioned, I think most of us can at least relate to that guy. At least at one point in our life, we can relate to that John the Baptist. We can look back at our lives, at our current vantage point, at times in our life where we were pretty sure we understood what Jesus was doing, and now we're not so sure. We thought God was leading us in a certain direction to this job, to this marriage, to this move. We thought God had begun a healing work in us to this thing that was broken in my life. And now with some distance, we look back, and it's not so clear what God was doing. Or maybe we have this idea of who Jesus is, and something happens in our life, and we suddenly realize that Jesus is not who I thought he was. You know, whether we'll say it out loud or not, we have certain expectations about who Jesus is and what Jesus' job is done. We have a job description for Jesus. And when things in our life and our journey of faith don't go as expected, it can often seem like Jesus has failed his job. 
See, the distance here between you and I and John in this prison cell has collapsed. I think we get this guy. Because we, like John, have expectations about what Jesus is supposed to be and supposed to do. We have this unspoken agreement with Jesus that if that we do our part, Jesus will do his part. And then we find ourselves in prison of our own, bewildered, confused, doubting. I mean, dare we say disappointed with Jesus? Are you the one to come, Jesus? Are you really the Messiah? Are you the one that's come to rescue us, or should we be looking for someone else? How does Jesus respond to John's question? Let's put up that next slide. All right, this is the response. Question comes to Jesus. He sends back this response. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Is that a yes or a no? The question is, are you the Messiah? Is that a yes or a no? I'm a little confused. See, and John may have been a little bit confused too, because I don't think Jesus is telling John a lot of new things. John's been getting the reports in the prison cell. John gets the weekly newsletter. John subscribes to the weekly podcast. John knows what Jesus is doing and teaching. We're told that in the scripture. He's told the deeds of Jesus, which is the problem. John, a few people get healed. A little girl, a little nobody gets raised from the dead. Where is the axe-wielding, winnowing fork in hand, burning the chaff with fire, cataclysmic judgment, topple the tyrant, get your cousin out of prison, Messiah that John is waiting for? See, it's interesting because both John and Jesus are both looking at the prophet Isaiah for guidance on what the Messiah will look like. They're just looking at different places. Let's, let's put the slide up from Isaiah that John has in mind. This is from Isaiah 4.4. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment of fire. Like, that sounds like John. That sounds like John's preaching style. Okay, Isaiah 35. Now we're going to move to the chapter where Jesus is going to quote from. Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Okay, I think both John and Jesus are on board here. Now listen to this. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. That sounds good to John. See, John has zeroed in on the divine judgment part of God's coming to his people. But Jesus says to John, hey, look again, cousin. Keep reading the prophet. Because if you just keep reading a little bit farther in Isaiah 35, you'll hear what Krishna read just a little bit ago, and Jesus will quote that to John. Then, let's put up the next slide. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see what's the difference here? John is zeroed in on the divine judgment. Jesus is zeroed in on the divine blessing. John's looking for a yes or no, are you the Messiah? And Jesus' response is, the answer's right in front of you, John. You just can't see it. You gotta look again. I'm fulfilling God's promise. I'm fulfilling God's promise that when God comes to God's people again, 
this is what's going to happen, but it's different than you expected. Can you see it now, cousin? I often run at the hiking trails that are Beaver Creek Park near Rogers, and as I run on the trail, often you will, you will run through a spider web that's crossed over the path, and usually you don't know it until it's there, until you, you hit it. But one day I was out at Beaver Creek, and I went there as an extremely thick blanket of fog had enveloped all the hills around there. And what happened when the fog lifted finally, it lifted, but it left the moisture on every one of the webs, spider webs that was in the woods. And it was like a magical moment because I looked and everywhere I looked, I could see spider webs. The whole time, every week I was there for years, the spiders had been working. They had been, they had been weaving their webs, but I just couldn't see it. It was only when the fog came in and put on its moisture and then lifted that it all became clear to me, that it all became visible. The whole time they were right there in front of me. I just couldn't see them. Jesus sends back a message to John that says, look again, John. You've got certain expectations of what the Messiah is like, what the Messiah is supposed to do, and those expectations are blinding you. The signs of God's visitation to save and rescue people are all around you. You just have to have the eyes to see it. And then Jesus ends his message to John with this. Listen to this. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The Greek word for stumble here is scandalizo, which should sound familiar. This is where we get the English word scandalize. It means to trip up, to cause to stumble, to offend. Okay? So here you've got another beatitude to add to your list from what we looked at in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, happy, Congratulations to the one who doesn't get tripped up by Jesus. What? Doesn't get tripped up by Jesus? I thought it was my sinful nature that tripped me up. I thought it was the corrupt world that tripped me up. I thought it was the devil that tripped me up. Don't get tripped up by Jesus? What is Jesus saying? Well, let's notice what Jesus is not saying to Cousin John. Okay? Remember, John is asking a question. I got serious doubts about you. How would you respond to that? Jesus doesn't say, blessed is the one who is never disappointed in me. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, blessed is the one who never doubts me. He doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't say, blessed is the one who's never frustrated with me. Now, what Jesus says, as one person put it, God bless you, John, if you don't throw the whole thing out because I'm different than you expected. God bless you, John, if you don't throw the whole thing away because I'm different than you expected. God bless you, John, if you can learn to trust who I am more than who you think I should be. One of the challenges I face as a parent that maybe other parents face now or faced in the past is the massive expectations that come on Christmas Day. I don't know any parent who doesn't want their kid to come down on Christmas morning and their face just light up because they got exactly what they wanted and exactly what they expected. But I've also got a few years under my belt now with kids and Christmas, and I've come to recognize that usually, often the best gifts, the ones that get the most use long-term, that have the longest lifespan, 
that bring the most joy, that produce the most memories, are not the gift the kid expects or even wants. But the letdown is hard. And I think something similar happens as we grow older with Jesus. When we choose to follow Jesus, whether we realize it or not, we have certain expectations for Jesus. We have certain images about who Jesus is, and we have a job description for what Jesus is to do. And there's this unspoken agreement with Jesus that looks and sounds like this. If I do my part, Jesus, then you do your part. And when that doesn't happen, when Jesus goes off script, when Jesus fails to meet the job description we have for him, our expectations are not met. We become disillusioned and disappointed with Jesus. And that's hard and that's painful. And it's an opportunity. Because it gives us a chance to get Jesus again and ask the question, if Jesus isn't who I thought he was, then who is he? Let me put up the next slide. Barbara Brown Taylor says this. Every letdown becomes a lesson and a lure. Did God fail to come when I rubbed the lantern? Perhaps God isn't a genie. Who then is God? Did God fail to punish my enemies? Then perhaps God is not a cop. Who then is God? Did God fail to make everything run smoothly? Then perhaps God is not a mechanic. Who then is this God? See, every time we learn that Jesus is not who we thought he was, we, like John, are invited to look again. It's hard, but it's an opportunity. We have a chance to recognize that Jesus doesn't always fit our job description that we have for him. Because the real Jesus is way more interested in transforming you than he is making your life comfortable. Yes, sometimes the vision we have of Jesus doesn't match up with the real Jesus. But it's an opportunity to realize that the real Jesus is far more compelling and beautiful than our false visions of Jesus. And Jesus says, when this happens, when your expectations of me are not met, when you feel disillusioned, when you feel disappointed with me, God bless you if you don't get tripped up. God bless the one who is willing to let go of the expectations they have for me and to discover who I really am. God bless you when life throws a wrench at you, when you find yourself confused, when you find yourself disappointed, when you find yourself disillusioned, when you find yourself doubting, and you don't throw the whole thing away. God bless you when you realize that following Jesus is different than you expected. It's harder than you expected. It's more confusing than you expected. It's less certain than you expected. God bless you if you don't get tripped up. If instead it drives you deeper into the arms of a Savior who adores you. Blessed are you. I'm grateful Jesus was able to confuse John, just like I'm grateful Jesus was, is still able to confuse us today because it reminds us we do, in fact, serve a scandalous God. What do we remember this Advent season? That the God of the universe comes to us not in power but in weakness as a helpless baby born to a couple of nobodies in the backwoods of the world. Scandalous. At the end of God's great visitation to us, God will die in the person of Jesus, naked, bloodied, scorned, humiliated, alone, on a cross. Scandalous. 
Yes, Advent takes us to strange places. Yes, it takes us to a prison cell high in the mountains where a disillusioned and doubting prophet paces back and forth. Because Advent wants you and I to arrive at Christmas Day not in a haze of sentiment, but in awe. Blessed are you who is not tripped up by a scandalous God in the person of a scandalous Jesus.